things are dynamic and you can't stop. The work never stops. And because there's always going to be inflow and there's always going to be challenges. And as long as you plan for that and you adjust, you have to adjust. You're going to have, you're going to have some failures. You're going to have some, some ups and downs. And, and one of our, one of our city leaders uses a, a, a wonderful term that she, I think she coined, uh, relentless incrementalism. And it's that you, you can make a difference, but you have to accept that you're going to have these bumps along the way and you have to adjust to those changes and tweak it, learn from your failures, double down on your, on your successes and, uh, you know, and, and really monitor the, the, the outcomes and be, be very frank and accountable in public. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, Gordon and LaShawn spoke with two changemakers from Bloomberg Associates about homelessness as a public health issue and why homelessness as an issue in itself is homeless. In the final part of the discussion, Linda and Tamiru remain to discuss challenges and opportunities that emerged from the pandemic and highlight some unique solutions to homelessness from their book, How 10 Global Cities Take on Homelessness, Innovations That Work. This is where they left off. The global community has been dealing with an unprecedented pandemic for the past 17 to 18 months. And this may have brought on some challenges. And to my surprise, some positives have come out to this in regards to homelessness. Can you talk about some of these um, these positive impacts of COVID-19, if I were to phrase it like that, and also um, any challenges that have kind of resulted from COVID-19? Well, let me let me start with some of the um, some of the surprises that happened, um, and then Tamara, uh, maybe you can take up the the challenges. What what's really interesting in emergencies it, is that it just makes people behave differently. Like all of, um, suddenly something that felt impossible yesterday, you're doing it today. The urgency of the matter just causes people to step outside of their silos. Um, to, to be willing to break rules. It's a, you know, an emergency is a time of um, asking forgiveness, not permission, if there ever is one, and you just go and you do it. So like a great example is in New York City, they closed down the subway. And so um, in the middle of the night where, you know, my daughter went to college in Boston and she called up in the, you know, and she's like, this is outrageous. The subways close at one o'clock, like, you know, except in New York City, like, you know, she just grew up there and she's used to like 24 seven, the subways never closed down. So during COVID, they actually shut the subways down and the subways are a place. And we know we've been working on it for years and years and years. Um, there's, um, you know, uh, from anywhere from a thousand to two thousand people that are sleeping in the subways every night. You know, we and we know the patterns. They know like the the, the longest end to end um, line and they will, you know, sort of bed down and they know they weren't going to, they're not going to get disturbed until they get to the other end. And so by closing down the subways, we knew that it was going to push, um, a large number of people who, um, were otherwise taking shelter there. And so it, it was really used as an opportunity, quite frankly, um, that it, so the street outreach folks, um, worked intensively. They were all ready to, um, they had buses at the terminal stations, people coming off the subways, they were ready to bring them right to shelter intake and, um, and move them into a shelter bed. People didn't want to get on the buses. 
They're like, I don't want to go schlep all the way down to 30th Street in central Manhattan in order to then be shuttled somewhere else for a shelter bed. And so what they did at, you know, in two o'clock in the morning, they sat there and they actually reworked the shelter intake system and allowed for a virtual placement of individuals straight to a shelter bed. And they got 800 people to take a shelter bed. And so that innovation of making, dropping the barrier to the entrance um, for services so that people were more likely to accept shelter was a huge improvement. All of those people that would, you know, were choosing to just sleep on the subway night after night after night are now suddenly taking that first step toward normality, services, support, and then moving on. That's the pathway that's going to get them toward permanent housing and out of homelessness. And so now, as you know, I, I wish I could say COVID is over. We know it's not. But as the subways are reopening um, 24-7, um, the question is, okay, what do we do? Do we go back to how it used to be? No, no. We keep that innovation. We learn from that, um, the, the, the great lessons that come out of innovation. In Houston, it was a time that um, they were actually able to bring many providers together who hadn't been working together collaboratively, as we were talking about earlier. Um, during COVID, it was like, just, you know, roll up your sleeves. We've got to make this happen. We're going to do what it takes to address these needs. Everybody, you know, bring all your toys to the, to the table and everything that you have, every resource. We're going to put it all in a central pool and we're going to go through all these individuals and we're going to figure out how to make the best match. And so instead of everybody sort of keeping their own resources to themselves and accepting or rejecting people based on whether they believe they fit into their services, they pooled the resources and allowed the most efficient match across services. They're going to keep that system there in Houston now um, as we move into a new you know, stage of, of life. So these lessons um, can change behaviors in a way that people find great benefit out of it. And one of the concerns is that uh, that, that COVID is, is likely here to stay. And, you know, everyone may not agree with that, but uh, but I think it's, it's becoming more and more apparent that it may be become a it may become a disease that uh, is similar to something like the flu where we need. Uh, we, we know that in, in the United States, we're, we're going to start uh, recommending boosters or we have recommended boosters for, uh, you know, for people uh, starting very soon. And, uh, and, and, and even back in, in May of 2020, you had, uh, you know, a senior official in, in the World Health Organization, Dr. Michael Ryan, saying COVID is here to stay. You had, uh, you know, the former uh, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention director, Tom Frieden, who said COVID is here to stay. And so it's something that we have to adapt to. And that, that doesn't mean it's going to be like it is now. We'll have, you know, hopefully around the globe Im- improved uh, uh, vaccinations among uh, all populations, so we have a baseline, um, and then you, you have the kind of petri dish of of ongoing uh, variants, and then uh, as well, you'll have more effective treatments. But but the issue is, you know, you're going to have to deal with this challenge, and then you have uh, economies that have been battered. So you have people that could potentially, uh, you know, uh, uh, lose lose their jobs. Still, you have. Um, you know, precarious government budgets. So, so the the money that Linda mentioned that 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 were you know was poured into these initiatives will that will those resources be sustained? And that's a big question too, because now so many cities, and I'll talk about the cities since it's a topic of this book, made made 
progress in bringing people uh, off the streets, are the governments going to you know, keep the resources going to which and it's a long term resource that's needed to build housing. It takes several years. So, so that's one of the concerns is now what happens and, um, and, and it's, it, it's tough to say. And then, so one more thing is, is we still have ongoing challenges. We mentioned, uh, uh, you know, uh, and Linda writes about this in the, um, you know, emergencies and disasters chapter. We have ongoing humanitarian crises and look at Afghanistan and, um, and, and we've seen, uh, so many migrants pour in to Paris and Athens from Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria in the past and Venezuela, Venezuelan migrants pour into Bogota and, uh, and, or Lima, Peru. Uh, and, and, and so you see, you know, th- these other crises are ongoing. And then you add to that climate crises, like the Houston experience back in 2017. I mean, Nashville had a huge tornado that occurred as well, uh, recently. So, so you have all these ongoing crises that are not going to stop. And that adds to the, you know, to, to the already heavy burden of dealing with this, uh, the, you know, this challenge during uh, a pandemic. You know, it was, you're making me remember, um, uh, Tamaru, the, um, when we were working in Bogota, they were negotiating the, um, the peace agreement with um, the FARC, which was the entity they, they had shifted. They went from the original kind of militants to then, you know, hiding deep in the woods and, you know, all kinds of nefarious business dealings that were, you know, keeping them going. But ultimately, the peace agreement was to bring this entire subpopulation of the country um, back up into the, you know, the light of day and into legitimate government. And, you know, they're, so they're negotiating and I'm, and I'm like, oh my God, you guys, this is going to be a huge disaster. All these folks are going to come back to the city. They're, you're just going to get this huge population displacement. It's going to result in, in massive homelessness. And they kept like kind of, you know, ignoring me, blowing me off. Don't worry, Linda, don't worry. It's fine. It's fine. And then it was fine. And I'm like, how did that happen? And ultimately it was understood that there would be a huge need for relocation assistance, a huge need for housing, and a huge need for supports um, for social integration back into mainstream society. And the national government put all of those systems in place. And so that that is a lesson. So if you want to, you know, um, a lot of times people read this book and they're like, oh, you know, a bunch of Pollyanna. They think that homelessness is solvable. But we know homelessness is solvable. We've seen it happen. We have seen how really concerted efforts. Yes, you have to have resources, but you have to understand the dynamics. You have to apply the um, interventions um, based on knowledge of what works, evidence, of programs that have to be structured in a very specific way, applied in a specific way, and um, and and the individuals supported and engaged in a specific way. So, but with the resources, um, the evidence of what works, and the coordination and commitment and collaboration, we know that you can solve homelessness. The example in Colombia is one. The example with veterans in the United States is another, where they are already eligible for um, really robust, high-quality medical and mental health services. They are already eligible for rental assistance support that can get them access to an affordable unit. 
and what it and the, but there was nonetheless if you looked you know 10 years ago if you looked on the streets and you asked people overwhelming disproportionate representation of people who have history of military service and so veterans are just you know all over the place in shelters and on the street and it was a lack of coordination and when they set their mind to it they solved veterans homelessness in many cities and in fact it's so significantly that many considered that it has been solved at a national level during the Obama administration so we have examples that show that it can work and so to to me it's about using the evidence and committing the resources and and more so leveraging the existing resources to make them work and then solving homelessness And, and Linda, thanks for for taking us in a positive direction again, because I felt like I took us off into uh, it, it's such a complicated issue, and so many things are happening. But 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 you know, and I and I just want to to double down on what Linda said is that you know it is it is an issue that that can be addressed effectively, but you also have to keep in mind that things are dynamic, and you can't stop. The work never stops. There's, you know, and, and because there's always going to be inflow and there's always going to be challenges. And as long as you plan for that and you adjust, you have to adjust. You're going to have, you're going to have some failures. You're going to have some, some ups and downs. And, and one, of our, one of our city leaders uses a, a, a wonderful term uh, that, she, that she, I think she coined, uh, relentless incrementalism. And it's that you, you can make a difference, but you have to accept that you're going to have these bumps along the way and you have to adjust to those changes and tweak it, learn from your failures, double down on your, on your successes and, uh, you know, and, and really monitor the, the, the outcomes and be, be very frank and accountable and, 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 and public about uh, what's working and what's not working. But you can, you can have an effective strategy. On a brighter note, you know, you mentioned homelessness is, is a challenge. Um, when you look too far down the road, you're unable to see that small changes, like you said, can add up to, to bigger changes over time. And you might lose sight of the bigger picture if you look towards what the end goal is. So I appreciate that kind of insight. Uh, so, you know, taking it back, you know, to the book, you mentioned uh, there's a lot of innovations that you present uh, from those different cities, the 10 different cities that the book is focused on. So I wanted you to kind of situate, you present them in terms of kind of levels of prevention. Uh, so, you know, if we're talking about primary prevention uh, for homelessness, what are some examples of those? I feel funny talking about it because uh, Linda actually implemented the program in, in, in New York City and it was a home-based community prevention program. And, and, and so that was, that was a great example of, of primary prevention where You know, you're actually using data to uh, to model who are the the most likely uh, people to become homeless, and and it's really difficult to predict. And and you know, and and what New York, what, what Linda did in New York City is she said, I don't just want it to work here, but I actually want to uh, to evaluate it in the most scientific way. And she she created a randomized control trial where people were assigned to you know, to, to the intervention group or, or not. And so she created really strong evidence in the field that showed that you can actually, uh, you know, uh, predict very well uh, and, and, and actually, um, and, and, and even among those, uh, th those individuals, those families who ended up in shelters, you could reduce the length of stay in the shelter program. So Linda, I don't know if you want to add to that, but that's a great example of primary prevention. 
Yeah, and it was it was it was great because the the evaluation also demonstrated that the cost of the program far exceeded the savings. Um, you know, you're never it's it's really hard because sadly we live in a world with um, great degrees of concentrated poverty and income inequality, and it's you know. Um, it's very hard to distinguish one poor household um, from another in terms of figuring out who's most likely to become homeless. And so we used a huge amount of community level data. And so um, it demonstrated that it, we could, um, with, a, with sufficient adequacy, um, um, identify those most at risk such that it dropped um, the onset of homelessness by about 20%. But then the, the conducting the survey um, gave us a insight into something that we had never anticipated, which is that for people who received the service um, that, but became homeless nonetheless, it reduced their shelter stay significantly. And so that prevention had actually given them resources, connections, and social support. So despite the fact that they had an episode of homelessness, they were able to solve that um, more quickly. And there were even more savings greater than the prevention, than the pure prevention um, in terms of the reduction in the num in the, the time spent in shelter. So if you look at it just from a budget point of view, because of course it was it's hard to make the case that we know enough that we can adequately um, predict who's going to become homeless. So the budget officials were always very skeptical. Um, and so you have to make the case based on um, the, the ability to, to run an efficient and effective service and from a cost perspective. Um, but ultimately, if you think about the trauma that was um, avoided in those, you know, mostly you know, young children's lives who um, are disrupted from family and friends and school um, and the kind of the untold savings just in human um, human trauma from as a result of that, it, it's a it's a. Um, um, very encouraging. Now it's so interesting, sort of as a as public health folks, and you know, interest in in advancing this work. Um, we took a lot of heat for doing a random control trial on homeless prevention. People called us inhumane, um, you know, uncaring, thoughtless, bureaucratic, soulless people that we would ever put anyone on a random controlled trial. Because basically we're saying two equally poor at-risk individuals, this sub, the half is gonna get the service and the other half, you're not gonna get the service. And a lot of people found that morally objective. And from my perspective, we sort of, we, we took the blows associated with that because nobody is getting the service beforehand because we can't mm -hmm. prove that it worked. And so this is exactly. another really tough thing when you talk about evidence-based services, mm -hmm. you just gotta go through the hard work of demonstrating it works. And sometimes that means taking, taking the criticism associated with the, these kind of experiments. And let me add to that, Linda, because I think you deserve credit too, is, is because you were able to show that it was effective and that the city was willing to pay to expand it. And so it was expanded and actually impacted Citywide. many more people. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. That's an awesome example. I remember in my, that's one of the things I struggled with in my epidemiology class. I would ask my professor, why are we randomized uh, doing some RCTs for things that we know works? And he says, but do we know that it works? So the whole point is, you know, if it's ethical 
and we're not you know causally certain that something works in that case yeah. it, you, know, you know it's ethically allowed to do a randomized control trial and as you mentioned when it was determined that it you know was known proven to work then it can be expanded to the people who were maybe not in the in the actual intervention arm of the RCT so that's a exactly. that's a cool example yes mm-hmm. yes exactly so in the book you also mentioned that a key element to successfully tackle homelessness and you mentioned it today as well is systems level thinking and being able to focus on that coordinated strategic uh, response so w- what does a systems thinking coordinated strategic response look like and can you I think it'd be very interesting to hear from your personal experience in office as the deputy mayor. What kind of actual practical challenges were there um that kind mm-hmm. of limited that um response? Yeah, it's um it's it's ego and bureaucracy and um and um laziness. I don't know. Sorry. You know, when, mm-hmm. I'll think of some more insults to throw like at blunt. people. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> <Love it. laughs> but, you know, it's I'm, I'm thinking what came to mind based on um, my own personal experience was um, our effort to um, better um, leverage and, and expand supportive housing in New York City. And so here's how it, it used to work. The Human Resources Administration um, it turns on services for individuals. And so they determine eligibility. And so they've got, you know, their little assembly line eligibility process where they have to where people have to fill out all their paperwork and demonstrate a level of need. And then they turn on the service. That was um, the, the, the client that we're trying to get the service is at the Department of Homeless Services, either on the street or in shelter. And the Department of Homeless Services is trying to prioritize the individuals who need um, supportive housing uh, based on those uh, individuals, um, the acuity of their need and trying to avoid having somebody who's going to solve their own homelessness without supportive housing. We don't want them filling this incredible rich resource of a supportive housing bed. So homeless services is trying to you know, push the right people to the front of the line. But, but the line is controlled by human resources that is, you know, telling people when, you know, how to, you know, whoever, you know, first come, first serve, whoever applies, then we just move them along. And whenever you're eligible, bingo, now you can move into supportive housing. So that, and then supportive housing itself is managed by the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, because they do all the hard work of putting the resources together, buying the, you know, building the units, and then contracting with nonprofit providers who are operating the housing itself. And so the front door, like when the apartment opens up, is controlled under a third agency. And um, and then um, and then there's actually a fourth role, which is the um, um, Department of um, Health and Mental Hygiene, which provides the service contracts that are supplemental to the housing contracts that provide the on-site services for supportive housing. So all these agencies, all working separately and and the bottom line is that it, it almost worked to the effect that the easiest to serve people who least needed the housing were getting into the units because they were they could navigate all those bureaucracies. The nonprofit providers are like, you know, do I want this pain in the butt guy who's going to do nothing but, you know, kick down my doors and assault my workers and, you know, be trouble, you know, into perpetuity or do I want this you know nice docile young person 
who looks super cool and he's going to come in and he's going to get a he's going to get a job pretty quickly and he's just going to be a nice upstanding citizen so we wanted to improve um the placement and so the the way that we got around that got to do this so i was the homeless commissioner at that point i collaborated with the housing commissioner the mental health commissioner and the human resources commissioner i took them all out to dinner i sat down i bought i bought maybe more than one bottle of wine and we talked about why we were doing our work why do we get up in the morning and go to our jobs and what are we trying to do and by the time you know the end of the conversation okay it was more than one dinner and you know and and it was a lot more people but ultimately we joined together in the shared vision and the shared value around the highest and best use of a precious resource and getting our systems to stop acting as individual um kind of siloed bureaucracies and getting um getting them to work as a single system which is from a client's point of view i don't know anything about this i just know this is one process to get me into a bed right and so um that wound up generating a huge number of reforms we actually consolidated contracts everybody instead of everybody doing their own contracts we put them under one umbrella and moved the money to one agency that would do the contracts we streamlined the eligibility and placement rate agreeing on who the most um suitable persons you know to to receive placement and then what that required was an agreement um on that everybody jointly talk about the the kind of the waiting list and the extent of the demand and agreeing on who should take um highest priority for placement and then the providers came to the table as well the nonprofits they acknowledged that you know they said hey listen we have to manage an orderly place right it, it can't be mayhem you know we, we the the housing has to be stable but they acknowledged that they were doing some cherry picking and they too agreed to this highest priority thing so none of that would happen unless you really tackle like all those like little mini fiefdoms and control you got to give up some power you got to agree to let somebody take your turf and you just that's mm. the hard work of collaboration that makes systems work better dinner and wine dinner and wine it does it <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks for thanks for all the interesting insights i hate to i, I see that we're running out of time there so i just want to transition to final words and tamir you didn't get a chance to uh give your insights on this one so i'll throw this question to you first and we'll uh send it to L- uh, linda to wrap it up but what should our audience uh take away as those key attributes that are required to drive this meaningful change that you've been describing throughout this podcast as it relates to homelessness yes i i i'd say so as linda said the systems based approach really just creating a collaborative structure used to address you know, you know the, the multiple sectors and and that can be healthcare and and housing and workforce and and clear targets need to be set and monitored and outcomes reported to the public really really important and then and i'll just say like in in the book we we do in addition to new york city we talk about uh two big success stories edmonton and houston they really stand out as uh as models for this type of of systems based approach and in in since 2010 edmonton reduced homelessness by about 43% in Houston in around the same period did so by about 50% and and a key part of their approaches is getting people into housing so i would say that that's another key attribute is a housing led approach meant means get people into housing 
Uh, don't wait until they're, they're, they're re- before address, you know, get them into housing before you address any other need. And that's what it really means in simple terms. And, and I would say that the amazing thing about these two cities, and this is, and this is important for other cities because everyone says we don't have enough funding. These two cities did not have a lot of municipal funding to do this work, but they did have the important resource of leadership and commitment from the top, whether it was uh, a non-government organization or was it whether it was the mayor of the city and and because they had that that leadership and that collaborative structure and they were able to harness the resources of many stakeholders they were able to have an impact and so that so these are examples of models it can work you can make a difference there is hope how can you top that Bra- bravo tomaru that that's it and that's what you know i hope um people will get from this book it's it's really hard work and it can be very frustrating and you can have lots of failures, but you can't give up because we know we can make progress. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just numbers. These are, these are people, their lives. Um, there's nothing that can be more um, fulfilling than, um, than, than being thanked by somebody who was in a really, really terrible place in their lives and had, um, the kindness um, of the uh, providers and the, all the frontline workers that are just working day in and day out in order to try to get them to a better place, and then to see their you know dignity restored to their lives is an incredibly um, moving and compelling thing. And you know, if that's as a society, um, you know, not what we're about, then I don't know what we are about. Right? And so, it's really. Um, um, it's a, I hope this book is a, is a thank you to all of those folks. And then, you know, for others that, that are, are in the middle of it and, and, and need to feel like some partnership with um, their colleagues elsewhere, we, we hope they can see themselves in it. Fantastic. And, and thank you for sharing your insight. Um, and just for the listeners out there, we're, we're having a discussion based on many things that are touched on in the book, but it only scratches the surface. So we definitely recommend everyone to go out and check out the book. Again, it's titled How 10 Global Cities Take on Homelessness. And where, where can our listeners find the book? At your local bookstore, I'm sure that you can, um, they can order it for you. You can get it from the University of California Press, which is the publisher. And um, of course, if uh, um, on Amazon as well. And my understanding is that all the proceeds uh, from the sales go towards um, a cause? The, yeah, yeah the, um, mm-hmm. any, any of the authors um, are whatever gratuity that we would have gotten um, um, as being um, dedicated to Bowery Residence Committee. One of our co-authors, Muzzy Rosenblatt, is the executive director. And so mm. um, hopefully, yeah, if you, if you buy a book, just know you're also um, making a donation to, to BRC as well. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.